Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Uh, so good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for today's webinar, uh, Challenging Blended Families, the Intersection of Trust Administration and Fiduciary Litigation When Two Families Become One. Uh, today's program is being jointly presented by the Trust Administration and the Fiduciary Litigation Subcommittees of the BBA's Trust and Estate Section. My name is Jordan Bound. I am a Senior Associate at Kasner & Edwards and Co-Chair of the BBA Fiduciary Litigation Subcommittee. I'm pleased to serve as co-moderator of today's webinar with Nathan Bress, partner at uh, Pratt, Vittorio Popoff, Trust Counsel at Nichols and Pratt, and Co-Chair of the Trust Administration Subcommittee. Uh, we are joined today by three accomplished panelists who will be sharing their insights on today's topic. Uh, first, we have Liz Drake, partner at Bob Goldman Law, LLP, uh, Boutiques Trust and Estates Firm in Salem, Massachusetts. Liz focuses her practice on estate planning and trust and estate administration and regularly serves as a trustee. Uh, next, we have Patricia Malley, partner and assistant chair of the Trust and Estates Department at Burns and Levinson in Boston. Uh, Patricia advises individuals and families on estate planning and estate and trust administration. She specializes in helping transfer wealth uh, to her clients' next generation via comprehensive gifting strategies and legal avenues while minimizing taxes, providing creditor protection, and preserving assets. And last but not least, we have Russell Smith, uh, Senior Associate at Kasner & Edwards here in Boston. Russell specializes in fiduciary litigation, including probate matters, trust disputes, conservatorships, will contests, actions to remove personal representatives and trustees, and complaints in equity. Russell has also been appointed by the Probate and Family Court as a fiduciary in various contested matters. So just a quick rundown. So in today's program, we'll introduce a series of fact patterns involving issues which can arise in blended families, in trust administration, fiduciary litigation. So for today's purposes, we are generally referring to blended families as families which include children of previous marriage, of one spouse or both, uh, and can include children of the current relationship. And so we'll hear from our panelists on their practical tips and considerations uh, for the various fact patterns, including how to pursue or avoid litigation if you're representing the spouse or spouses, a child beneficiary, or the trustee. So given the various fact patterns that we hope to get through today, uh, we will be taking questions at the end of the program. I will now turn things over to my co-moderator, Nathan Bress. Nathan. Thank you, Jordan, um, and thank you to all our panelists uh, for being here today. Um, this, is a, this is a great group of panelists, and I, I think one um, one thing I want to point out is we've got a, a pretty broad set of experience here from drafting through trust administration to fiduciary litigation. So I'm I'm hoping to get some some great cross pollination with our uh, with our panelists on the various temporal parts of that spectrum that uh, sometimes it's easier easy to miss out on if you're in one of those silos. So um, I'm going to jump right in. So our first sort of uh, subset of fact patterns are the the step parent situation. Um, you might be a trustee for you might be the trustee for a trust, or you might be the uh, counsel to the trustees on a uh, a marital trust that benefits a second spouse, uh, and at that second spouse's death or uh, the the principal would go out to the the first decedent's kids, uh, and uh, I think we probably a lot of us have dealt with this fact pattern before, um, and and uh, uh, all the fun that it can be. So I'm going to just start out with the sort of the, the simple variation of that uh, one simple variation of this about that. Um, or a trustee has discretion to to distribute principal to the spouse, but obviously, you know that's discretionary, and and any amount that they do depletes what remainder will go to the kids someday. And uh, the question there is always, how do you strike that balance between the spouse's needs during the spouse's lifetime and the kids who are saying, hey, don't spend all our money before we've gotten to it. Um, Liz, do you want to start in on on uh, on that fact pattern? 
Yeah. So I think I'm going to be repeating this all through the presentation, but I think documenting the donor's intent through the drafting process is really going to be key. Um, with blended families, we want to know what is the intent of that marital trust? Is it there to be very, very generous for the surviving spouse and what's left for the kids is what's left and the, the donor is okay if that's less? Or is it really there as a source of last resort and the surviving spouse should be using their own funds either as a first resort or to supplement the distributions from that marital trust? So from a drafting perspective, we want to know, is the spouse defined as the primary beneficiary of that marital trust? Can the trustee disregard the interests of those remainder beneficiaries? Or probably not. Um, I think if we can draft into the document how the spouse's other resources should be considered, um, I've seen provisions that say that those other resources must be considered or they may be considered. I think we want to be really thoughtful and intentional on how that provision is drafted. Um, of course, the dis, uh, principal discretion, whether it's HEMS or broad discretion, is going to be really important here in terms of what's left for the children. Um, and clarifying what is the expectation that that spouse is using their own funds. Um, I think the in terms of family dynamics, it can make the situation move a lot smoother if the kids of the first spouse don't need to wait all the way until that second spouse's death to receive anything. So if we can do some small bequest or fund them with a life insurance policy or just something so they're not having to wait for any distribution until that step parent who maybe there's an age gap and it might be a long time before they die. Um, I think that can go a long way in ter terms of smoothing that relationship. Um, and I think if it's possible to communicate some of these decisions with the children while both spouses are alive, um, so there's no surprises after one spouse dies, that could be very helpful. Um, just to just to sort of jump off um, from that standpoint, too, a lot of times we'll have clients who come to us and, uh, um, you know, step parent has a great relationship with their stepchildren. Um, and I mean, that's all fine and good, but that doesn't mean that that relationship is going to be maintained, um, you know, throughout or when the children's parent passes, like biological parent passes away. So just to Liz's point, um, it is important to, you know, um, touch on these issues, regardless of what the family dynamic currently is, because um, that's really the best way to minimize, you know, what may arise down the down the line is if you proactively address them, um, even if the, the circumstances at the time seem fine and the potential issues seem unlikely uh, to occur. Yeah, kind of following up on that uh, particular point that, um, you know, circumstances do change that you know the children don't always see eye to eye with their step parent and stuff and suddenly you've got uh you know trust set up for the benefit of the spouse to the exclusion perhaps of, of a child and stuff russell from your perspective on the litigation side what, what do you see on on these types of scenarios and what are some ways to kind of you know minimize uh the the fights that may occur so i i would um i'd repeat liz's advice um for essentially all of these fact patterns about documenting the intent. Um, often I will see a, an estate planning file where the, where a dispute does arise and there's, there's nothing except for the documents really. Um, good note taking, um, side letters, all of that can be incredibly useful both um, in defending the, the intent and making sure that somebody comes to challenge it, that, that you, have, you have everything that you need to eliminate those challenges as quickly as possible. Um, I do I agree also, I think in, in a situation like this, you know, being able to give the children something prior to the passing of the second spouse um, will go a long way. It is very much kind of an interpersonal dynamics question where for some of these people receiving something is going to be more than just the financial gift. It's going to be sort of a statement of affirmation of that relationship. And those relationships are often um, strained in a situation where you have blended families. Very often they're not, but we have enough of them that are that um, we deal with those conflicts. Um, one thing that's also interesting to keep an eye on for in terms of litigation for these kinds of cases is um, 
this surviving spouse may or may not continue to have capacity for the remainder of their lifetime. And if there's only stepchildren involved in that situation, um, you can see cases where, where stepchildren sort of try to step in and get a power of attorney or um, file for a conservatorship in order to take control over um, the second spouse's life, their, their finances, their standard of living, and sort of use that authority to sort of make sure that they're keeping a little bit more for themselves. Um, a really well-drafted standard um, within the document will sort of help um, address that as well as potentially having somebody who's, you know, making sure that there's an independent trustee as well um, and not just a family trustee. Um, can I just want to add sort of jumping off of the point that both Liz and Russell made uh, with respect to um, making distributions to the children prior to the death of the surviving spouse. One component that um, the planner should consider is any estate tax implications. I know that's sort of separate and apart from this presentation, but um, that's, you know, something that should constitute part of the discussion with the clients um, in terms of whether they that's a concern of theirs and, you know, how that may play a part in the amount that they decide to distribute or provide to benefit the um, the children. Great, thank you. Um, so uh, another fact pattern we see often, and this one is maybe a little bit more sort of a limited time frame, though, is uh, after that second spouse passes, and maybe you've had a, their stepkids rubbing their hands for a while, saying, when can we get our money? And 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 we, I, I know we have had, you know, the, the body isn't even cold yet. And, the, and those kids are calling you up and saying, when can we get our money? Um, and so I'm curious to see our panelists' thoughts on what are things you can do to, one, just it's a communication issue. How do you explain? Hey, I can't give you all this money this week, right? There's there's a process. And two, what other things can you do beyond communication to to maybe smooth that that tension and their impatience in that period? Yeah. So I think communication here is going to be the key, providing a realistic timeline, which is probably going to be a timeline that's longer than those beneficiaries are going to like, um, and letting them know some of the factors that can cause delay. Um, sending regular updates. Um, if it's been a month and there's really not been a lot of progress um, for, for whatever reason, I think sending an update and just saying, here are the things we're working on, still don't have a, a firm date on the distributions, but um, just keeping them informed so they don't feel like they've gone six months without um, any communication. And then if possible, if there's enough money that we're comfortable that there's enough to pay debts and expenses and taxes, um, sending some portion, some partial distribution to those beneficiaries um, can be helpful. And um, they, they might need it. They might not need it for current needs, but it's going to make them feel a little bit better about waiting. That's great. So, Russell, from, from your perspective on the litigation side, say you're representing a, a beneficiary who's who's eager to get his or her hands on money, uh, or you're representing the trustee and stuff, what are some, some ways to kind of you know, mitigate, uh, you know, potential litigation or, or pursue it to that matter. It's, yeah, it's just very similar to what, to what Liz said. I mean, if you're trying to mitigate the litigation, you just have to be really candid with the clients. We don't, we don't control the court's process. Um, and sometimes there are delays. I mean, one of my favorites was, um, I remember a case I had where I had, had to have three different citations issued. Each one came out, either arrived at our office after the return date had passed or arrived with an error on it, one had like the wrong newspaper, those kind of things. Often you can call the court and try and get those things corrected administratively, but it was just, it had, it wound up being like three months of delay for no explicable reason. It was just, just the kind of the vagaries of the registries. Um, and, you know, if, if you want to be sort of pushing, if you're representing someone who, who wants to push for, those distributions. I mean, typically the best way to do that is to inquire pretty directly and see if there is a possibility of an interim distribution. Usually, a trustee isn't going to want to get served, or isn't, you know, the estate's not going to want to go through litigation. Um, that's pretty often a reasonable course um, 
to go through. Um, of course, if they're being more intransigent than that, and it's been three years, then that's a different story. You may just have to file either a competing petition or an equity complaint of some kind, um, make some demands to move it along. But yeah, the real issue is I think these cases often wind up boiling down to being sort of a, uh, a dance between counsel and the court on, on the timing. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Um, yeah. Move on to, an, uh, to the next fact pattern. Um, probably a lot of us have seen uh, at the, again at the estate administration point for the second spouse. Um, there was maybe there was a marital trust set up by the first spouse for the benefit of the second spouse, and it's, it's sort of a variant on the last fact pattern. But uh, now that trust is going to be obligated to pay some of the expenses of the second spouse's estate administration or or otherwise. Um, and sometimes that trustee might have some some discretion on on paying more or less of that. And again, you've got the the remainder beneficiaries saying, you know, wanting to insert themselves into that process, wanting fewer things to be paid out uh, on behalf of the estate. Um, and I'm curious uh, your experience or guidance on those on those issues. Liz, do you want to start us out on? Sure. I think the key thing is to read the trusts and hopefully you drafted the trusts so that they interact well and it's clear who pays for what. Um, but I think looking at the the whole picture, um, both trust documents, all the provisions and just really mapping out where expenses should be paid. Um, for a lot of things, there's not a whole lot of choice of who you're using for different services or how much they're going to cost. But for more expensive things, you might want to consider getting a couple of quotes from multiple accountants, not simply using the same team that you typically use. Um, um, Patricia, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. So um, in terms of like the planning component, you also want to consider when you're drafting from where the tax may be paid. So if, you know, I don't know, the marital trust is holding primarily real estate with a little bit of liquidity, but that liquidity isn't necessarily going to be sufficient to cover the marital trust portion of the estate tax. I mean, that that may be a problem. Or, um, you know, and this doesn't necessarily come up just with blended families, but if a majority of an estate's assets consist of real estate that is being distributed out to beneficiaries, and there is insufficient liquidity from other state assets to pay taxes or to pay expenses. You know how how should that be handled? And a conversation, you know, with your client prior to death is really the 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 best way to proactively address this and you know minimize or try to minimize potential headaches for the children or the personal representative or the trustees um, post-passing. And, you know, to the extent that it can't be fully addressed, at least being able to say to the family, you know, this was discussed and the priority was for you to receive real estate and, you know, sort of determine or handle a state tax payment on the back end, that that will at least give them some sort of comfort as opposed to, hey, this discussion never happened. Why is that? Whose fault is it? Is it the financial advisor? Is it the um, you know, state planning attorney and whatnot? So definitely, like Liz said, you know, proactive um planning, sort of figuring out how all documents um come into play, aren't interwoven, are real is really the best way to go about um addressing uh, a liquidity issue. Yeah, and I think from um, like from an administration standpoint, one of the area, one thing to be cognizant of is what expenses in this are likely to be challenged, right? So like the tax expenses are probably a little bit less likely. People typically accept that you know taxes need to be paid. Same with um, burial costs or crem cremation costs. Um, so there are other expenses that are within that standard. One having a very well-written standard really really helps but also have a rationale for what the expenditure is accomplishing. Um, I have seen a lot of cases where um, there's discretion to, to make these kinds of um, these kind of payments or these expenses. And, you know, we have a fiduciary that says, well, 
I paid that because it made sense to do it. Um, and that's it. And that's great. It probably did make sense to do it. But if you have beneficiaries who are challenging those expenses, that's going to fall a little bit flat. You know, if, if there was, um, uh, if there's a little bit more to it than that, I think, uh, I think um, the example, let's give the example of getting multiple bids on something. That's a great way to help, help mitigate that and say, look, like I did everything I could, this was a necessary expense. Um, you know, um, the other rationale that I hear a lot is, well, it's what the decedent would have wanted is for this expense to be paid. And that too also, I think, can fall a little bit flat sometimes in part because um, the decedent probably wasn't the same person to everybody in their family. They may have had, they may have been perceived a little bit different by different family members. So being aware of those dynamics, right? Um, so, you know, like mom and dad might have been really, really tight-fisted with their own kids, but spent lavishly on their grandkids. So the grandkids think that, you know, they would have wanted no expense spared on, you know, uh, maintenance or updates to this property that's going to be distributed. Uh, kids might feel a little bit differently than that. Um, those kind of different layers of relationship matter a whole lot. Um, you know, and particularly if you can find a way to rationalize or if there is a clear rationale for, for any of these expenses that are actually preserving um, estate assets, it was like, you know, insurance for real estate, uh, real estate improvements that are necessary to sort of uh, keep the property intact. Um, those are often, you know, document those really well. Um, uh, those are relatively safe. Um, it's when you get into the, the optional stuff that becomes, uh, that becomes risky. All right. Thank you. Um, go, to go on a bit of a, uh, a, a more specific one, um, often a plan will leave a house in trust for a second spouse um, and then outright to the kids or in trust for the kids after that. Um, and one thing we see all the time is how much the trust is expected or requested to make distributions for the maintenance, upkeep, and uh, things that might be considered more than upkeep of that of that house. Uh, and I think we kind of we tend to see two two uh, two versions of that. One is where maybe those kids say, "Hey, when 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 my stepmom is gone, I don't want that house. I I well, I don't want to be spending a lot of our money keeping it up." And then the, the the flip side might be that's gonna that's the family vacation house we're going to have that someday. I want you to spend everything to keep that keep keep that place running great for when we get it, and 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 uh, to the to the exclusion of other distributions to step parent that one might be making. So that that's sort of two topics in one there. But but uh, if what are your what are your uh, thoughts on those? those issues, folks. Yeah, so I think being clear in the documents and the planning stage of what the intention is in terms of how how is the house treated within the context of the trust and who should, is benefiting from the house now or later and who should be paying those expenses. So I have a planning scenario, husband and wife are both still alive and they have a very set plan of how they currently pay expenses. Um, wife contributes one third, husband contributes two thirds. And that's just how they've set up their financial lives. And as part of the planning conversation, we discussed with them that they'd like to continue that arrangement um, after the first death. So there'll be a real estate and trust for the surviving spouse. And the, the that trust should be contributing one third or two thirds, depending on who the surviving spouse is. Um, and then the balance is coming from the surviving spouse themselves. So that's a way for them that they've figured out how to keep the balance. But in drafting that, it was more complex than expected because we really had to think through every possible type of expense and whether that we're defining that into the fraction or whether it should be paid in some other way. So it really just forced everybody to be on the same page, but we have it documented. It's in the documents themselves. It's in side letters of why they chose to do that. Um, but it was really important to be so specific. Um, we can't just leave it silent. This is, it's too important of a, a factor. Um, and then separately, I think um, 
it's often the case that real estate is going to become a drain on the house um, or drain on the trust at some point. It's just so expensive to maintain. And it would be great to have guidance in the trust document or in a side letter about um, whether the grantor would have intended the surviving spouse to downsize into something more manageable by the trust or whether they can stay there as long as they want, regardless of how expensive it's getting. But that's really a client decision um, and it should be made clear um, throughout all of the documents that we're drafting. Yeah, and just following up on that, um, you know, when you're serving as a trustee, you have a fiduciary duty to typically balance, you know, the present beneficiaries with the remainder or successor beneficiaries. So in Nathan, I'm sort of jumping ahead, I think, in terms of the different fact patterns, but Nathan mentions um, where maybe you have a vacation, family home, and it's supposed to be utilized for the benefit of um, spouse, and then it ultimately ends up going to um, the the children. Well, you know, do the children want to expend significant funds presently to maintain the house? And that, you know, that really depends on their intention with what's going to happen to the house down the line. And, you know, um, again, as a trustee, you have to balance like the surviving spouse may need to be able to utilize the house during her lifetime, but does it need to be maintained to a, you know, ex- extraordinary level or is it sufficient if we have, you know, like the, ba- the basic, um, um, require requirements for, for living or standard maintaining her standard. Um, and so that, that is something that, you know, to the extent that the document doesn't advise as to that, then the trustee is going to be looking at, you know, fiduciary obligations and looking at the trust code and um, potentially prudent, prudent investment responsibilities to sort of balance and navigate that. So to, to the extent, like Liz said, you can proactively address those components in the trust. That's really the, the best way to handle it um, from a, a planner standpoint. And, and Russell, I mean, we've, we've seen time and time again, anytime you've got real estate held in trust, whether it's primary residence, whether it's vacation home, you know, family cabin, whatever it may be, uh, it's it's just right for potential for, for litigation. Um, you know, there's a lot of complicating factors and stuff. We've seen everything from prenups and postnups and having to enforce those, uh, you know, the, the various terms and those, which obviously come up a lot more in blended families and stuff. So curious to get your take on the litigation side for these types of issues. Yeah, this one is a is a situation that's right for a conflict. Um, I mean, you're looking at a situation where these these kids are going to be really tempted to try to remove the trustee entirely if they feel like they're not getting traction. You're, you as trustee are going to be in a position where, depending on sort of what um, you know, what the opinions of the various um, kids are, um, you know, some of them are going to want to support uh, that that parent or step parent, um, you know, their standard of living, some of them are going to want to keep more money for themselves. There's a lot of potential for disagreement there, um, including having them, you know, try to fundamentally remove the, the trustee or, or bring pressure through the, that threat to get the trustee to lean one way or the other. And, you know, for a trustee, I think as, as, as Patricia and Liz said, you know, the, the clearer their uh, standard is, um, the less they can be pushed around. Um, you know, this is also the kind of case where I think uh, you know, these kids are probably to some extent going to be looking to, to liquidate the property. They may try to bring some kind of a, a petition to that effect also even, um, uh, you know, and sort of continue the, the standard of living elsewhere for, for that, um, that second spouse. Um, you know, it's trustee again, if you, and if you have some way to have to quantify the impact of the expenses that you're making on the property value, that's a good way to help defend yourself. Um, you know, uh, there's a, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of potential avenues that this is the kind of thing where if you have sort of, I, I think that it's a good idea. Um, if you have somebody in your office who does fiduciary litigation, or if you, you know, if you're doing estate plans and there's, you know, a, a lot of real estate and a lot of, uh, kids in a blended family um, definitely talk to somebody that does fiduciary litigation because um, the avenues for people to challenge this kind of stuff are, are myriad. Yeah, 
Great, thank you. But one um, just sort of practical thing that I'll add on that is uh, we, you know, often maybe you're at the estate planning uh, stage and you can say to your clients, well, what does it cost to run this property? Then they might have a number and they might have a very realistic number. And and uh, one thing it's easily lose sight of is that number might change when there's only one spouse. Um, you might have one person who's really handy at running things is, and and then that spouse dies and all of a sudden you got to ha- get a handyman in for everything and, the, and that house is costing a lot more to run than it did before. Um, and sometimes that can push maybe unexpectedly towards uh, towards a situation where you're going to want to let it liquidate liquidate the house because it because it becomes uh, unexpectedly unreasonable to run. So, uh, so to move on from that and into maybe a little more direct on the the sharing a house, the sharing the family cavern or the family compound one. Um, I think we've we've a lot of us have encountered this. You could probably have a whole seminar on this one but real quick do you, do you guys have some some thoughts on the on the greatest hits of of that fact pattern and uh, how to keep it happy a big endowment is the short answer what if you're going to have a, a family compound or like a, a vacation property that's, that's held in trust that all the kids are going to come out and use and manage all of those schedules and whatnot um have a big chunk of cash behind it in order to make sure that those expenses are are met. Uh, you know, as Nate said, you know, otherwise you're going to have the handyman out there a whole bunch. And I, I've seen this like half a dozen times. The handyman is invariably one of the kids um, who is out there doing repairs on the property and then wants to get paid from the trust for that as well. And that creates a whole nother layer of um, uh, you know, discomfort. Um, I mean, I think the where I see those those cases fall apart um, typically is is one if there's not an ability to reach an agreement on how the property is going to be used among the beneficiaries, or two if the documents um, uh, the documents don't spell out how decisions get made. You really, I mean, with a family compound thing, you're really creating sort of a like a a little like a quasi like timeshare, you know, um, uh, or some sort of, you know, more corporate entity where, you know, which you may want to actually consider instead of just a trust as well. Um, but where you're going to need dispute resolution mechanisms, you're going to need contribution mechanisms, you're going to need a lot of things in that nature. Um, you're going to need, you're probably going to want a, a dissolution mechanism um, because eventually, you know, families typically get bigger and bigger. And so after two or three generations, you may have too many people involved, too many beneficiaries even use it. And then somebody's going to try to partition um, the property. If you, you know, if you want to foreclose that avenue, you might want to try and include language that, you know, that establishes how individuals can be bought out of their interests and where that money comes from. And um, those kinds of things. That is a, yeah, that's a very, um, the family cabin is often a dream, I feel like, um, but it's very difficult to implement in a way that's going to last for as many generations as people want it to. So, all right, um, so let's switch switch up the the overarching fact pattern pattern a little bit um, to one that we we see fairly frequently, where you might have two spouses, and one of them is a beneficiary of a trust, multiple trusts, from maybe from a very wealthy family, the other one is not. And um, maybe during the life, their their combined lifetimes, one of those spouses has taken in a fair amount of income from one of those living a certain uh, level of lifestyle. Um, And then after that, after that beneficiary spouse passes, the non-beneficiary spouse might have, might be in for a rude awakening in terms of, what kind of lifestyle they can live. So um, I'm going to talk about one particular th- the situation that one might encounter in that is that that is where the the beneficiary spouse might have uh, a special power or maybe a general power to appoint some or all of the trust principal at their death uh, and potentially uh, appoint that to their spouse. Um, and sometimes you might have concern from 
from that person's kid say, hey, wait, you, you're going to appoint all this money away to our stepdad, leave nothing for us, and uh, you can get a, get a tricky tricky set of competing interests there. Um, folks, how have, you, how have you handled that or encountered that? So I think one consideration with that power of appointment is you could consider exercising the power and further trust with limits on what can be distributed and what the property is for. And that would ensure that the remainder gets to the intended beneficiaries, the, the first family. Um, one thing that I always consider, and I feel like it often, I learn that there's an issue too late to do much about it, is joint representations in situations like this can be really tricky. Um, you need to, if it's a joint representation, you need to be working with in the best interest of both of your clients, both spouses. Um, you need to make sure that everybody knows what powers of appointment they have, the authority they have to exercise it. Um, and that might not be in the best interests of the spouse, or maybe it is. Um, I think knowing that from the beginning, if it's possible, um, could lead someone to an estate planning lawyer to determine just to do the representation of one of the spouses. Um, so for example, if you have a relationship with a family that set up lots of family trusts and one of the beneficiaries is married, you might consider representing just that beneficiary and not their spouse as well. And that would allow you a little bit more flexibility in terms of how you're exercising, how you're advising that client because you don't have the same responsibility to the non-beneficiary spouse. But sometimes you learn that the, it's messy too late. Um, and you need to comply with all your duties under ethical rules. But um, it, it's a messy area. And there are definitely situations where I've represented both spouses and I've gotten halfway through the representation. And I really wished I didn't. Yeah, I think um, like Liz said, when you're sort of presented with that situation, there are a whole lot of options in terms of how to navigate. Um, so from a planning perspective, like it, if, if you are approached by someone who's looking to sort of start creating these family trusts to pass um, assets down the line from like a generational standpoint, then maybe consider um, who the, uh, you know, appointees can potentially be. So do you really want to give um, your child or grandchild the ability to appoint to a potential spouse? Or would you rather it just stay within, you know, the, the your descendants or um, your issue, which would, you know, I mean, potentially help negate this problem, at least with respect to future descendants feeling left out? Um, it may not help if um, you know, a child's spouse is is sort of dependent or used to having this standard of living based on distributions that your child was receiving. But um, that's, you know, an, an issue for your child and their spouse to deal with or discuss down the line. But um, if if your goal is really to maintain assets for the benefit of descendants or like lineal family members, then take that into consideration when drafting um and incorporating powers of appointment just from um, from the onset. I've sometimes drafted powers of appointment to say that up to 50% or 25% or whatever it is can be exercised in favor of a spouse, but the balance can either can only be exercised among descendants or will just go to the descendants in the specified proportions. And I think that could be a good compromise in a lot of these situations. So you know that not everything's going to the spouse. Okay. Yeah, I think that's good. I think I'll also maybe um add that it, that it, that it, this is one of those conversations that that can sometimes you you forget to to really flesh it out with the client at the drafting stage but it's always surprising to me folks that say oh yeah of course i want my you know my stepchildren to or my sorry my my uh my children's spouses to be able to benefit from this and others say absolutely not and it's i don't i think it's just a very uh a, a, a a broad and surprising range of, of how people feel about that and, and family philosophies on whether they want that or not. And sometimes they want that for, for their children's spouses, but not their grandchildren's spouses because they don't know who those are yet. Yeah, it can be a very different thing when you're talking about allowing distributions to your son-in-law who you know and like or don't like uh, versus it, further generations down. So, right. And your perspective on your 
son-in-law or daughter-in-law can change over time too, which is something uh, to consider when you draft your initial documents, maybe you love them. And then who knows, you know, right before your death, what the the dynamic is, um, at least between you and your son-in-law or daughter-in-law. And maybe, you know, you, you don't get around to updating your documents to reflect your change in um, perspective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think this kind of arrangement does, it really calls for a serious examination of what those relationships are and is also, um, this is a good example of why you uh, should probably follow up on estate planning clients every so often to check in and see if things have changed. The last time I litigated a, a case like this fact pattern, um, it was one where the two, uh, the two biological children had actually become estranged and it was the stepchild who had been around for the last 20 years helping helping take care of uh, their step parent that um, is where they would have exercised that that um, power of appointment in favor of and and of course the you know the biological kids of course were up in arms about that but um, they also had been around for 20 years so you know we had to deal with that situation um, you know, documenting everything, making sure you're doing these updates um, is a good way to sort of keep the record, can keep the record up with the facts as they change on the ground. Um, and one one area too that's going to be really tempting here is um, be cognizant if there's a, a power of, a, of appointment um, in a situation like this of who, if anyone in the in the children stepchildren category. Um, has a power of attorney um, because if that power of appointment does go to them and there's a question about whether there was capacity at that time, any anybody who's in a fiduciary capacity um, uh, who then benefits from a change in state planning documents um, may be subject to a shifting burden um, and maybe their burden to prove that it was done uh, legitimately, instead of sort of forcing the the party contesting the change to prove that there was undue influence, so um, that shift can have a lot of meaning uh, in terms of getting the case to settlement um, and and dealing with uh, the fallout from it. So, thank you. Um, so another fact pattern that comes up a lot is the in, in our office, we call it the year is mine on ours, right? Both parents might have kids of their own from a previous relationship, get together, have a, a third set of kids together, um, and and that can lead to some, some unique dynamics and some unique challenges for the attorney and the trustee. Um, one I'd like to, to start on with is, is that age gap, the, the you know, the, the much younger sibling um, and how do you deal with discretionary distributions among those siblings when you're administering that trust, knowing that some of those might be 35 and some of them might be 18 in very different stages in life. And especially considering, you know, if, if mom and dad were around when the 35-year-old was in their 20s, they might have gotten their way paid through school. They might have gotten some help buying a first home. Now you're further on down the line. And that 18-year-old never had that when their parents are alive. What, if anything, can and should you be doing as the trustee to to uh, deal with that inequality? So stepping back to when you're drafting for this potential scenario, um, I think be mindful of when pot trusts make sense and when they don't make sense. Sometimes they're great to pay if there's uh, education expenses and the parents are generally treating the children fairly, but not necessarily equally in paying for those expenses. You want that to continue post-death. And then at a certain point when all the beneficiaries have completed their education, we can divide it into separate shares at that point. But I think if there's a pot trust, you wanna be very clear of what is it for, um, what expenses are appropriate, how do you take into account past payment of big ticket things like education or help with the purchase of a home, um, starting a business, bigger ticket items like that. Um, you can also consider um, equalizing bequests before doing separate shares instead of a pot trust. So if some children are older, have already had X dollars of help, 
um, do a bequest off the top to the younger child of X dollars. And then the balance can be divided equally and we can skip the complexities of the pot trust. Yeah, I think I agree. I think if you do an equalizing distribution, any of those kids is going to have a hard time. It's, it's an uphill fight for them to complain about that. Um, this is this is one of these times. It's funny too because it, it it happens also in in the reverse where there's um, because of you know the fact that maybe an elder child didn't get as much because their parents weren't as far along in their careers or something like that. So you know if they have if you have parents who have one kid in their early twenties and you know two more in their in their mid thirties, uh, the financial you know, means the parents may have changed greatly during that time. Those later kids may be getting more and you may have the, the older child feeling a little bit left out. Um, and I think, you know, sort of for clients who are in that situation, you know, if they, if they keep track, it's not a fun thing to do, but if they keep track of those big ticket gifts and, and those kind of the help that they've given those kids, you know, this one college, that one a down payment, that kind of thing um, that can go a long way towards ameliorating any kind of hard feelings among their kids about that kind of stuff, um, which is where, you know, the litigation is going to come in. Um, the other situation that I've seen this often lead to litigation is where the second spouse is uh, significantly younger. And then there's also a younger uh, child because then sort of the two older kids will say, well, you know, our half brother or half sister, you know, his mom's going to be around or, or his dad's going to be around for another 30 years more than you know, ours is. So um, they have support there. Um, that can often be a driver for litigation uh, as well. Um, and again, it's mostly if, if they are going to get challenged, it's going to be challenges to the trustees. Just make sure that you're doing your diligence, documenting everything and, and having a good rationale for why um, these distributions are made the way they are. Yeah, another option too is um, if everyone's sort of on board that whatever the trust provides doesn't fit the scenario, um, is utilizing like a non-judicial settlement agreement, if everyone agrees and provided that whatever the modification is, isn't going to violate a material purpose. But we've um, utilized that before where, you know, there was a, a pot trust structured until um uh, decedent's youngest child reached a certain age and the pot trust was intended to be for education, but um, all of the children had essentially agreed that they were not going to pursue any further education and the youngest child was like a year or two below the, the termination age. So, um, you know, the, the trustees and the beneficiaries all agreed that it really didn't make sense to maintain um a sort of pot trust for an additional one or two years. Um, and so the trust terminated um, and essentially went into share trust at that at that point. Um, and so that made sense just from a, you know, a fiduciary income tax return standpoint, um, an administrative standpoint, there was really no reason to maintain these funds in a separate trust when they could just be um distributed in accordance with the estate plan and still maintained in trust for the benefit of the beneficiaries. It wasn't like we were completely um, terminating the, the trust and fiduciary relationship or concept. It just, you know, didn't make sense to maintain these assets in one, one pot for an additional like two years. All right. Um, so a couple of you talked a little bit about, about the pot trust and when that's a good idea, when that's a bad idea, but we've we certainly end up administering them sometimes, even when they might be not the best idea. Um, and and sometimes what we've seen too is there'll be a, a trust that might contain several subtrusts, one that is a pot trust discretionary and, and one with share trusts. And uh, we have seen the situation where one, says, one person has largely blown, blown through their share trust and said, now I want, I want discretionary out of the pot trusts. And to their siblings to say, well, why are you impoverishing me to when she's already blown through all her money? Uh, and and it's definitely in the blended family situation, the differences in age, differences in, in uh, upbringing and background can complicate that issue. So what have you folks uh, experienced in that realm? 
Yeah, so I think, again, being clear about what the pot is for, um, if it's clear enough, the trustee might just be comfortable saying no to that request from the child that they want more. Um, one thing you could do is, let's say, there's three children, child one has asked for more in addition to what they've already gotten their separate share trust from the pot. You could consider distributing that, but distributing at the same time, equalizing amounts to the other two. So that way everybody stays even. Um, but I think um, pot trusts get messy pretty quickly. Um, Patricia, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, um, I mean, Liz, I think you you really did cover it. The only other component to think about is, or to consider is um, the role of like an independent trustee potentially in a situation like this or with any, any trust where you have um, a blended family, or even if there isn't a blended family, if there's concern about family dynamics down the line. So it's not uncommon for clients to want, you know, uh, a spouse to serve as a co-trustee or as a trustee of a trust um, or a child to serve as a trustee or co-trustee of their trust or of that of a sibling. And that can inevitably, you know, cause family dynamic issues if beneficiary, whomever it is, is asking for a distribution and family member doesn't want to give it to them for whatever reason. Maybe it's justified, you know, sibling or I don't know, uh, you know, step parent is a spendthrift and can't manage funds, or maybe it's not justified. There's, you know, a vendetta against sibling or um, step parent. And so the really the best way to address this is to utilize an independent trustee who has no vested interest in the family dynamic or the outcome and can really um, sort of approach the situation from an objective standpoint you know, the, the, whether or not you have a family member serving as a trustee, there's, there's, the trustees always have uh, fiduciary duties that they're supposed to abide by, but sometimes family dynamics can get in the way just in the sense that, you know, beneficiary might be demanding a distribution and trustee doesn't, feels, feels like it's a violation of their fiduciary duty, but is intimidated or doesn't want to, you know, stir the pot. That's a great time for the independent trustee to step in and like be the bad guy and just say, hey, no, sorry. And that takes the burden off of the family member um, and can ideally try and, um, you know, placate uh, beneficiaries and any tension that may be arising, um, you know, between between the family. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I would. I would second that. I would say that like a pretty significant amount of the litigation that I do with respect to trustee removal arises in this context where you have, to, if you have just a family member trustee, and then that role carries with it all of the all of the familial baggage that that person has in those relationships with other individuals, good, good, bad, or ugly. Um, having an independent trustee in there sort of is an early stop on that. Um, and frankly, it's a stop that is is where the, these things often wind up. You know, if there is a significant enough family trust to be fighting over, um, and you know, there's disputes about the conduct of the trustee, it, it often winds up having a, a third party independent trustee appointed anyway, or or can you know reach an agreement to get there among the the beneficiaries that way that there's there's a true neutral that you know can be a bad guy when it's appropriate and make distributions when it's appropriate. Yeah. 